working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, Zach Albetta here, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Working Drummer Podcast. My guest today is London-based jazz drummer Pete Cater, who for over two decades now has been the drummer and band leader of the Pete Cater Big Band. Under his leadership, the band has remained at the forefront of big band jazz in the UK, and Pete is widely regarded there as the keeper of the flame when it comes to the music and style of Buddy Rich, Joe Morello, Mel Lewis, and many others. For those of you keeping score at home, this is our 99th episode, which means that next week, Matthew Krauss will be bringing you the 100th episode of Working Drummer Podcast. Matt has something pretty cool in store for that, so you don't want to miss it, and I'd just like to take this opportunity to congratulate Matt and Mike in advance on this milestone and thank them for bringing me along in 2016. In fact, it was almost exactly one year ago that my first interview for the podcast went up, so it's been a great year and a great experience for me, and I look, and I look forward to much more. Today's episode is sponsored by Sonar Drums, and here's Matt to tell you a little more about that. We all love vintage gear, and I bet you know someone that owns an old Les Paul or maybe a 56 Fender Strat that never leaves the home, and the question is, why do we love this gear? It looks cool, it gives you that warm, handcrafted tone, and often brings a unique vibe to the music. Of course, it has its limitations, and if we're talking drums, we run into problems like its fragility, limited tuning. So where am I going with this? Well, once again, I went back out to KHS America in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, to spend some time with some vintage gear. I'm talking about the Sonar Vintage Series Kit. I had seen and heard these at Summer NAM, but now I had a little one-on-one with these beautiful drums. Some specs you should know that make these drums uh, a modern vintage kit. The shells are that hand-selected premium German beach shell with rounded bearing edges. Keep in mind, this comes from the same forest of beechwood trees that were used in the manufacturing of sonar drums from the 1960s. The recreated teardrop lugs are a big deal. They look and feel just like the original, but now it has Sonar's exclusive tune safe system. In other words, they stay in tune. There are many beautiful finishes you can choose from, like the Vintage Pearl and my favorite, the Red Oyster. It looks, sounds, and feels like a vintage kit, but maintains the quality and reliability of a modern kit. You could really call this a modern vintage kit. So go to us.sonar.com to learn more about the Vintage Series and find a dealer near you. So I hope you enjoy this talk. Pete goes in-depth about the art and science of big band drumming, Buddy Rich mythology versus fact, and much more. Let's get to it with Pete Cater. You're known for for keeping the big band tradition alive and keeping the Buddy Rich tradition alive uh, specifically, but uh, you mentioned in, in previous interviews that Buddy Rich was not your first influence, that it was actually your dad. That's right. Yeah, my father was a good drummer. He wasn't a professional drummer. He had, when I the time I was born, he had a day job with uh, General Electric. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then, in the 1960s, there were so many opportunities for musicians. He was able to be out doing gigs five, six nights a week. He was very much a, or, or I didn't feel his absence, but he was out working all day and playing every night. Wow. And of course, the, the drummers of my father's age, because 
relatively speaking, my parents were comparatively old when I was born. They were both in their early 30s, mm-hmm. uh, which for that time in the UK was quite unusual. You know, parent, parenting tended to be a thing that people did in, got into in their, in their early and mid-20s. Right. Uh, so my parents, being that little bit older, uh, were not of a generation who had in any way been influenced by rock and roll. Mm-hmm. So the music that was playing in the house when when I was when I was very very young was things like Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Mel Torme, and lots and lots and lots of Dave Brubeck. Right. So the first big drummer for me was Joe Morello, and what a great place to start. Yeah, yeah. There's there isn't a better place to start in jazz drumming, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you know, I think I think uh, a lot of people talk about how. Uh, Certain individuals get a head start in life you know, because you know, maybe they're born into a family who are very wealthy mm-hmm. uh, or family with amazing connections in the music industry. But for me, my big start in life was my parents' fabulous taste in music <laughs> and the fact that my dad played drums and he was a good player. And you know, they're, they're all, uh, there were drums around the house. You know, he had a little practice set. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the toy drums that my brother and I used to play with, all the all this good music on records and on the radio, and I just thought every home was like that. This this was just the most natural part of my childhood was being around drums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I I want to jump ahead to to you know the the style that you exhibit in your playing today, um, and from from what I've seen, you you look to me like a, a hybrid of Buddy Rich and Joe Morello. Um, perfect. I have, I have my own observations about why that is, but I, I wanted to get your uh, thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, you you couldn't be closer to the mark, Zach. That is absolutely right on the money. And I think the reason is is this comes back to how very very young I was when I first began to be influenced by these players. Mm-hmm. And I think that the formative influences, the people that you hear. When you're first starting out and you don't know anything uh, and it's, it's all very new and very exciting and very impressive. Uh, so saying you don't know anything, but also I was so young that I was, you know, childish uh, optimism. I thought anything was possible. And uh, the, 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 I am. That, that is as good. I mean, I have a number of other very, very important influences as well. Mm-hmm but they don't present in quite so obvious a way as those big two guys do. You're right. absolutely spot Right. So like, how did you, uh, how did you start s- sort of, I mean, other than, other than Morello and, and Buddy, um, who were some of your other early influences and, and how did they sort of first converge to form your well, identity? Again, it was, it was just, you know, the music that I heard. I mean, I, I wasn't some, one of these, young kids who was only exposed to jazz, you know, right, listening to uh, Elvin and John Coltrane from, from early childhood, not at all. I mean, I loved pop music as well. I, I loved the Beatles. I remember seeing Hard Day's Night on television when I was about 10 years old and going out the following day and finding the soundtrack. Yeah. And that made me very excited about being in the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for all the rock drummers that I loved, you know, Ringo, uh, I was particularly fond of Ian Pace, Mm-hmm. Um, for all that I love those guys and what they were doing, they didn't make me want to play. They didn't give me this very, very visceral, uh, deep, profound inspiration 
that the jazz drummers did. And the other players that I heard very early on included Shelly Mann, uh, Cozy Cole, because yeah. uh, of course Cozy had a, a chart hit in, in the UK uh, with Topsy right. in, in the late 50s, a few years before I was born. And it was one of those 45 RPM records that a lot of people had. Yeah. And also Ed Thicken with, uh, with, the, with the Oscar Peterson trio at the time, right. with somebody who I came to very early on. I got and, to, I got hip to Topsy uh, a few years ago uh, when I when I lived in LA. Um, huh? I played in a in a kind of a you know retro swing group. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the the band leader was Mondo Dorami, who was the saxophonist and founder of Royal Crown Review. Um, oh, okay, yeah. And yeah, and so they did they did Topsy, um, and uh, you know for for whatever reason I hadn't I hadn't been hip to it before, and and he was like. I want you to play this exactly the way Cozy played it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, at, at first I kind of, I bucked at it. You know, I was like, man, I want to, I want to play my own solo. I want to do my own ideas. But, you know, the more, yeah. the more I listened to it, uh, and, and what Cozy did on that, the more I was like, I, you know, why, why screw with that? <laughs> that, that, that record was, again, it's kind of a, a, an early influence that, that was something that made me very aware of the sound of drums and the tuning of drums yeah. and the relative pitches. Because what Cozy does, as well as being very compelling rhythmically, it's extremely melodic. I mean, yeah. some of the some of the, the the ideas that he plays in, in the solos on both sides of that record, they are like drum melodies. Mm-hmm. It very very much a kind of precursor to to what we would associate with Max Roach and guys like that. Right. Right. And the other thing about, about that sound, um, I've, I've talked about this with Jameson Ross before, um, about how like the, you know, the bop tuning came after that, like the real mm. high toms that, that Max yeah. and Elvin and all those cats used. Um, mm. But, you know, especially on something like Topsy, um, you know, the drums still sound like drums. They're still in that yeah. Mid, yeah. mid to low range. Yeah. Um, and it really made me kind of fall in love with that sound all over again mm. and, and kind of... Yeah really forsake <laughs> the bop tuning, you know? Sure. I've, I've never been one of what I do in, in small band settings. I do like to crank the toms a little bit, mm-hmm. but for me, the bass drum should always sound like a bass drum. I'm not one of these guys who pulls that, the, the bass drum right up to where it's in the floor tom register. Right. Uh, because I, I, if I've got like a very uh, identifiable pitch down at the bottom end of the drum set, I don't feel that, you know, I don't feel that, you know, where ideas, uh, be they comping ideas or soloistic ideas, without that low pitch in the bass drum, I don't feel an appropriate degree of resolution in the idea. Yeah. And you know, if you, if you want to leave something hanging in the air, then you know, and and you fill on the small tom. Uh, and for me, the bass drum is so it's so it's like the you know it's like the, the it's like a, a major sixth chord or a major seventh chord right it's you know it's got a you know bass drum it has a little triangle after it it's like the tonic on the drum set there's just so much resolution yeah about what the bass drum does yeah and i i love that uh you know in in the recordings and videos that i've watched i've, I've i love that you you know keep the bass drum down in the bass because i think mm. especially in in um college and I, I, like i was probably guilty of this in college but in in college big bands the drummers are playing bop sets yeah yeah because they're also studying bebop and they're doing small sure. groups and whatever but they don't they don't really realize that like that that drum set sound doesn't really translate to the big band yeah but i'm and it's, it's only about tuning i mean most of 
a lot of my working life, I, I'm out with uh, 20, 12, and 14, mm-hmm. uh, which, which, of course, Mel Lewis used for pretty much his entire life. Right. Um, and it, it's, it's just about the tuning and, uh, and, and having, for me, like a, a nice kind of harmonic spread from the drum set. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to be like a really tight cluster all in the kind of middle and upper register. I want, I want to hear the, as much of a, a tonal spectrum as I can get from four pieces. Yeah. 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 Um, so talk about how you, uh, worked your way into becoming pro. I, I assume you were schooled at some point. Uh, no, I, I didn't have any formal instruction. Uh, really? No, as far as playing is concerned, uh, it was just hanging out with my dad and yeah, he, he didn't give me lessons as such, but he would show me things from time to time. Mm-hmm. But the, the real education began for me um, when I was about 12 years old. I mean, I'd done little things. Uh, I played for like school production. I remember playing for a school production of, of The Wizard of Oz when I was about nine. And, and they, didn't, they didn't intend to have drums on it at all. I just went into school one day. I said, can I play drums on this? Mm-hmm. And the teacher said, yeah, you can. And, uh, and, and, and everybody liked that. Uh, but what re- it really happened for me when I was about 12, and uh, I, I'm, I'm quite a tall guy. I'm over six feet, mm-hmm. and I became very tall, very young. So I was able to go out with my dad on gigs and go in at like, licensed premises, places where alcohol was being served, right. and not appear to be underage and not be challenged. <laughs> so from 12 onwards, uh, and it really for, then for about two to three years, I would be out on his gigs two, three, four times a week. Um, Just hanging out. Yeah, and sitting in, and uh, the more experience I've got, I can remember the first time I went along, they let me play two tunes, and then the more I would go, and the more I, you know, these these were musicians who were in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, So I kind of got into their way of playing, Mm -hmm. which which made me sound unusually mature for somebody so young. I, there's a couple of bits of video from, from my middle teens of television that are on YouTube. Oh, wow. uh, and and it, it, it's, it's quite evident there. I'm not, I'm not, you know, filling or soloing a lot. Just, I'm just kind of keeping time and, and supporting the, the, uh, the big band that I'm playing with. Mm-hmm. But I think for somebody in the middle teens, it sounds quite mature. And, and this was, this was a, an osmotic thing. It was an environmental thing of being around musicians who were, who were much, much, much older. Mm-hmm. And that was a great apprenticeship. I really, you know, I learned everything I could learn from that environment. Yeah. And as I got older, I had to move on to the next level, the next step, and, and you know, get into some, some different uh, contexts and ways of playing. Right. And that uh, sort of partially answers a, a, another question I had about your development, is that you, you grew up in the heyday of, of the rock explosion, yeah, um, but, yeah, but you you managed to you know resist that or ignore that and become a jazz drummer. Well, I think I think that's um, that's very much a, a symptom of uh, of of having grown up in the United Kingdom, where the musicians of my father's generation revered everything that came out of the United States, mm-hmm. and we had great British drummers in that style here, uh, most notably guys like Kenny Clare and Ronnie Verrill, mm-hmm. but to the British musicians at that time, irrespective of what instrument you played, the the, the Americans were that, that, that we we all looked to the West. All the guys of that era, uh, you know, the Americans were absolutely unassailable, and 
And so, and again, because my dad was not of a generation to have any time for rock and roll at all. Right. Uh, I don't. You, you could call it a, a bias or a prejudice, even if you like. Uh, so I grew up with quite a lot of his his mindset and point of view. Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't that I rejected, uh, you know, rock music and rock dramas at all. Far from it. Um, but these were not the guys who made me want to play in the way that you know Joe and Buddy and. Louis Belson and Sonny Payne and, and all the rest of them. Right. And, and whereas, you know, some of your contemporaries were probably hanging out in, in music clubs and in bands that were, you know, of their generation playing rock music, you were hanging mm. out with your dad's generation playing with those. Exactly. Bands. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what records were they listening to? I remember, right. I remember one guy in, uh, uh, in one of the bands my dad was in about 77. He said, oh, I just got this great album by Phil Woods. And, uh, and I, and I, I, I went right out and bought a copy of it. And, uh, and again, so see, it was, it, it was, it was kind of, it's kind of like, like, like ripples on a pond. It was spreading out from the kind of primary core of influence. Mm -hmm. And I was picking up on what other musicians were, were listening to. And in all my dad and all the dramas of his era, they, they would meet up in the drum store on a Saturday and, you know, they'd all talk about Buddy and, and Joe Morello and, and Louie and everybody else. And then I started talking to players of other instruments and they all used to talk about Mel Lewis. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, well, what's this? And uh, so being part of a generation that, that this kind of, in a, in a very positive way, it makes me old before my time right. because my grand, my grandfather was a musician as well. So I, I kind of got a lot of influence from him too. Mm -hmm. So I'm really about 150 years old. In, 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 <laughs> well, you look great, time. man. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. What was the gigging scene in, in London like when you were coming up? And, and at what point in your development uh, did you kind of reach a point where you were like, I'm, I'm a full-time pro drummer? Right. Well, I didn't actually grow up in London. I grew up in Birmingham, which is about 100 miles away. Okay, okay. And London was the mecca. That was, you know, that was where all the best players were and all the best gigs. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was growing up in a kind of provincial scene where there was a lot of work to be done. You could play all day, every day, mm -hmm. uh, with, with one thing and another. There were loads and loads of big bands that would just get together and rehearse and and they, they used to have this uh, marvelous once yearly big band competition where bands from all over the region would converge on this ballroom. And about 10 of them would go at it from like noon till 6 p.m. Wow. Uh, so, in terms of actual professional playing, I had to kind of find a way out of my, um, my kind of my local environment, mm -hmm. which was actually quite difficult to do in, in a strange sort of way. Because there was so much work. Right. If if all I cared about was playing all the time and uh, and earning decent money, I could have stayed right where I was. But I had this drive to uh, be uh, amongst. I wanted to play with the elite. I wanted to swim with the sharks, and I wanted to be amongst the best players I could possibly associate. With. Right. And I knew that sooner or later I would have to move to London. Mm -hmm. And it was actually later rather than sooner. Uh, I spent <clears throat> I spent my twenties in a kind of nomadic odyssey of playing in resorts and on cruise ships and theaters yeah. all around the place. 
And I didn't actually land in London until I was a few weeks shy of my 30th birthday, huh. which is which is kind of really, really late. So I was really coming from behind. Mm-hmm. Um, but that had its advantages in, in a different kind of a way because I already had so much experience. Right. Um, I was competing to get into the industry uh, against guys who were you know, 10 or sometimes more, 10, 12 years younger than me. Right. Uh, and uh, I had so much, so many miles on the clock at that point. I was able to kind of, you know, kind of jump to the front of the queue, and uh, it, after a, a within inside six months, I, w- I was working all the time. Yeah, I had a I had a similar experience. Uh, I I moved to L.A. Uh, right around my thirtieth birthday, um, and prior to that, I had been in Kansas City for seven years. Um, I went to grad school there. I was gigging all the time. And, and like you said, there was plenty of work. You know, I was making decent money. And but but yeah. I wanted to go to the to the mountaintop and sure. Yeah. And, yeah. And see what we and as, as I think all players should. Right. Absolutely. Think, but but we should what you were talking about. Plate. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, go on. Well, what you were talking about, um, about, you know, maybe being too old or it being late in the game. You know, I, I was afraid of that. Uh, I was like, is this, you know, I'm, I'm 30 years old. Have I missed the boat on, on this kind of big move? But yeah. I, I, you know, looking back on it, I don't think I would have been at all uh, ready when I was, you know, 23 or 24 or something. Right. Not yeah. just, not just playing wise, but just having the kind of confidence and security in yourself. To Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, and the, uh, the safe way for, for young guys is, is if they get into one of the London music colleges, I think. Mm-hmm. Or into into uh, one of the kind of um, kind of subsidised like national type youth orchestras where they have a peer group and like a, a, a ready made support structure. Right. Uh, if you're just going as I did, uh, just by yourself and just found a place to live, and I, I knew about <clears throat> I knew about three people. Right. And, <laughs> And and just uh, hoping to to find a way in, which which I did, yeah. and and I, you know you have to be. I I think it's probably more, it's definitely more difficult now. It was a lot easier back in the the early nineteen nineties when I was doing this. Yeah, I, I think the same could be said about L.A. or or New York or any big music town. Um, yeah. But what were uh, what was some of the first experience you got in London? What were the first uh, gigs that started happening for you? Uh, the the very first thing that I did was was for nothing, and it was just uh, a, a trumpet player who I'd met. I'd, I'd been doing a couple of tours with uh, a, a, a West End theatre star who, who was a singer, and he was out doing some concert tours. And a guy I met doing that uh, called me to do a Monday night rehearsal big band mm-hmm. um, because their regular drummer he'd, he'd gone off on a, an eight week cruise or something. Mm-hmm. And I, I just went to this local band. It was close to where I was living in, in Northwest London. And they actually had some quite big deal players turning up, guys who 20 years previously had been at the top of the profession and were still out going and rehearsing with this band to make sure their chops stayed. Because, you know, they were working like three days a week instead of seven. Right. And they were, they're out there maintaining their chops. And you, you're looking at this band and you think, well, that's so-and-so. He used to be in such and such a band on the television and, and so on. Yeah. And it was through doing that that I got my first uh, decent regular gig, which was for uh, an Irish singer. He was he was kind of like a, a European Bing Crosby with a few years later, a guy called Val Dunican, mm-hmm. who'd been a huge television star. 
and he was still out filling theatres all over the UK. And uh, I got in his band, and we were doing one, two, or three shows a week. But the money was great, so I was able to live on that uh, completely and have all this time free to be out, you know, going around chasing around trying to inveigle my way into the jazz scene in London, right. which. Uh, which took a little bit longer, but because I had this security of having a decent income and uh, having plenty of available time, I was able to explore that and, and develop that, which is, uh, and I feel very lucky that I was able to do that. Mm -hmm. How do you think, uh, speaking of the London jazz scene, uh, you know, what, what's the state of it today? What's the, the history of it? Um, uh, the, the state of the London jazz scene today is that it is absolutely full of great players. It is, tens of thousands of guys chasing dozens of gigs. Right. <laughs> um, and, and London is, is such a, um, an international magnet. Mm -hmm. um, and because there isn't a, it's quite so identifiable style and sound as there would be, for instance, in New York city. Right. Um, there is less uh, likelihood for incoming musicians to assimilate. You, you can go into any uh, any club in London on any given night of the week, and as well as British players, there'll be, uh, you know, I'm talking about guys who are domiciled here, not guys who are over-touring. Right. Uh, you run into Americans, uh, Italians, French players, German guys, Austrian guys, guys from Israel, guys from the Far East, guys from Australia, mm -hmm. uh, and the thing is, because there isn't, it's not like you're going to New York and you're going to go and play hard ball. Right. In the in the, the way this kind of image that as an outsider, we, you know, we think about that kind of New York vibe as far as playing is concerned. In London, guys kind of bring a lot of themselves, mm -hmm. and so so it's much more of a stylistic melting pot. You can hear a very very broad range of international influence in, mm -hmm. in a way that's possibly probably unique anywhere in the world today, which makes it very interesting and very exciting and also very competitive. So at what point did you decide, I want to be a big band leader? Like you're going along in London, you've got gigs, you've got income, you're kind of a freelance uh, yeah. hired all, gun. Uh, yes, all, all of the above. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what, what made you want to take on the crucible of <laughs> assembling 20 guys well, I had originally done that back home when I was about 19 years old. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, because there was this very, very, um, very, very buoyant uh, big band scene in the early 80s in, in, my, uh, in the Midlands where I grew up. Uh, but none of the bands quite played, or certainly none of the bands that I was playing in were quite playing the repertoire that I wanted to play. So uh, I just gathered together a whole load of players that I liked from various different bands that I was in and got hold of a bunch of charts from the USA by writers and from bands that I liked mm -hmm. and, and took my first steps as a, as a big band leader in, uh, in very early 1983, when, as I say, when I was still 19 years of age. Wow. And uh, I, I kind of, there wasn't, uh, you know, I was going somewhere else at that point in my life. And I probably did a, a dozen or so, maybe 20 gigs with that band over the course of a year or so. Mm -hmm. And then, 
you know, like anything when you're young, it's kind of a fad for a while, then you move on to the next thing. Right. Uh, then a few years later, before I moved to London, I was in a band that was kind of a house band in uh, a jazz venue in Birmingham that grew into a big band. Uh, and then, so I ended up with all the charts. And after I'd been in London about a year, I'd met a whole lot of really good young players. And there was just this, um, it word got around that I got all this music sitting at home because I'd brought a few things into one or two bands that I would go and play with them. Mm -hmm. and, and a few guys started to sort of suggest to me, they said, well, you know, why don't you do your own thing? Why don't you, and it wasn't like I, I went out there with this kind of uh, objective in mind. I just met all these really talented young players mm -hmm. and, and they, they could do justice to, to all these charts that I had. And then guys started to bring in original music that they'd written. And, and it just kind of, it just sort of took off by itself with, with very, very little effort on my part. Hmm. But that's how it seems at this distance. Anyway, I didn't <laughs> go on this kind of <clears throat> crusade of, of, of wanting to, to, to set this thing up and make it work. Right. It was just a very, uh, very fortuitous time. Uh, and it, yeah, I was very much around the right people in the right place at the right time. And, uh, and the band rehearsed every week for about three months and then started gigging. And that wow. was in 1995. Right. April, April 30th, 95 was the, uh, was the, was the first job that we ever played with the band. And and what kind of gigs were you doing at that point? Was it like theater shows or just uh, no? The theater shows did. It was kind of club gigs. It was circuit jazz gigs. Uh, and there was a tradition in London back then, which is it's just about hanging on. Uh, but it was again very very buoyant back then of uh, big bands playing on Sunday afternoons. And mm. as a sideman, uh, you could have your pick of all kinds of places you could go and play. There were a lot of regular venues around London that would have big bands on on Sunday afternoons. And uh, I just got onto that circuit and started playing those dates. And then uh, I got a bit of arts funding, which uh, enabled us to record. And then a bit more funding. I'm very good at filling in forms and uh, <laughs> uh, coming up with the right jargon and buzzwords that people want to read when, yeah. they're, when they're happy, funding, which is very important. And I think if I hadn't done that and pushed it, and got the band into the studio and got us out doing better dates, uh, I don't think it would have gone where it did. Yeah. That's not to say that I've spent you know, all my time ever since you know, filling in funding applications. I, I did it twice, once to record, once to do a tour. And I thought, right, if this thing won't have a life of its own without you know, money, public money coming into it, then maybe it doesn't have a right to exist. Right. So... Uh, right. You know, I wanted to just give it that boost so it would, you know, gain a reputation and kind of become self-perpetuating, which uh, happily it has done so. Yeah, that's something I talked about a little bit uh, with with Lauren Costi. Um, you know, at, at that point, she had been in, in London for a year and a half. And, and she talked about just in the short time that she had been there, she had seen kind of a, a, a greater commitment on the part of the, the government and the public to, to raise money for the arts and to spend money on the arts. Um, and it sounds like uh, that was that was beneficial to your band in, in getting it off the ground. Yeah, it certainly was. It certainly was. I, I wouldn't be, you know, my, my career would have a, a very different shape today had it not been for, for, for those, uh, 
those circumstances of about 20 years ago, certainly. Yeah. Definitely. definitely. Um, yeah, and uh, I think we could do a lot more in in the UK to uh, support the arts. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we do okay, but jazz is, is the Cinderella art form. And and compared to what they, they, they give to the, the opera and the ballet and the uh, right. classes and symphony orchestras, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're getting, we, you know, we're, jazz, we've got a, a metaphorical cup with some coins in it. Relatively uh, <laughs> speaking. Really. Yeah. But yeah. it has got better. There's more being done for young players, uh, which is fabulous. And, uh, I hope it continues to grow. I want to talk a little bit about the, the art and the science of, of big band drumming because, uh, Big band was my my gateway drug into jazz. You know when I yeah, I think I think it has been for a lot of people. Yeah, um, and uh, you you did a uh, like a YouTube series. Um, is it is it fundamentals of big band drumming or? Yeah, I think I think that's what we ended up calling it. That again, that's that's something that uh, happened completely by chance. Uh-huh. Um, we had a concert in London uh, almost two years ago to mark the twentieth anniversary of my band. Mm-hmm. And the guys who were promoting uh, the show got in touch with Rhythm Magazine and said, can we get some, because you know, they knew me, um, and they said, can we get some coverage for Pete on this uh, 20th anniversary concert? That we're doing? And I agreed that I would, uh, just to help promote the show, I would write a few pieces about uh, some basics for, you know, Big Band 101 for guys who've, you know, heard it and maybe been interested in it, but not kind of finding a way in. Right. So uh, I wrote some articles about that. I also you know, gave a rundown of important players that people need to know about. And then they said, well, you know, could we maybe do some video for this? And said, yeah, okay. And we just uh, rolled up at uh, Bell Percussion in West London, which is a, a real big hub for drummers. It's, mm-hmm. a, uh, it's a higher place and studio complex and a drum store. It's, 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 I mean, that's where I met Lauren. Uh, right. For the first time, and we, you know, it's where where the guys go there and practice. They go and rehearse, go and hang out. I go there and teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I went up there, and we just made these videos entirely uh, with the purpose of promoting this concert. And uh, they have been very popular. I've had a lot of very positive feedback from them. And you know, in a small way, they they've they kind of they've kind of enabled me to take another step up the ladder. I think profile wise. And, 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 you know, even though sometimes we do these things and we don't do them for immediate financial gain, right. I think it's important to remember that, you know, to play a long game sometime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, my wife said, well, you're not getting paid. And, uh, <laughs> and, and But, you know, the, the, the reward comes further down the line. It's, it's just, you know, yeah, um, a little bit of speculation, I think, is a very healthy thing. Right, right. Um, so we, we already talked about some of the things that you touched on in that, in that video series about the tuning and, and so forth, but, you know, without, without asking you to reenact the entire series, what are, what are a few sort of, uh, principles of, of big band drumming that you think it's, are, are important for, for drummers to know about? Uh, understanding how, what the drums are doing, uh, relates to what the ensemble is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're phrasing with the band, if you just you you know what charts look like, you just get usually a single line, occasionally a two line part with some of the horn figures on it. 
right and not just play exactly what the guys are playing i mean mm. if if the if the brass section is going bat 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 there's no point you just going bat 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 because all you're doing is underlining their part there's got to be some rhythmic connective tissue around those figures that's going to help them play their phrases all together in the right place mm. right where the drummer in the rhythm section and hopefully everybody is hearing the time and sometimes the best way to do that is not to phrase at all or, or, or just to play a small part of the phrase inside the you know the greater context of the groove right and and so that just but rather than playing their figures with them you play around their figures you play sometimes less than they're playing sometimes more than they're playing mm-hmm. and it just helps them put their stuff in the right place. And, and that, to me, is, is, is about, is one of the big keys to making a band sound good. The other one is being able to play fills that are in time. That yeah, that was something I, I, made a, I made a note about that when I was watching uh, one of your YouTube videos. Uh, you said, fills are timekeeping. Of course they are, yeah. yeah. And they've got to get the band from one musical idea to the next mm-hmm. and, you know nobody cares how much fusion chops you've got or could squeeze into this space um, I and mean, sometimes just playing a strong rhythmic shape that has that is rhythmically cohesive and has a kind of melodic feel in terms of the way you use the sounds of the drum set mm-hmm. uh, th- with the end goal being that the fills and the setups should sound like complete musical ideas that you could lift out and, you know, if you wanted to make drum loops or samples out of them, right. that they would sound like complete ideas. And that's, that's what I go for in my fills every time. Yeah. Whether it's, whether it's just a flam on the one to set up a band hit on the end of one or on two, or if it's a, you know, a quite a, an intricate, four bar break it's all going to sound like a complete musical idea mm-hmm. that gets get you know that there is part of the composition that isn't just something that you've shredded in the practice room a hundred times you think, oh, i'm going to put this in there you know save, save that for save that for your, your, your open drum solo right um the you know the drum fills should have they should have some relationship to what the band's playing right. this is one of the Sorry, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I was, I was, uh, it, it made me think of how there's, you know, there's rhythmic content in, in every chart, in the horn parts, in the piano comping and yeah. in, in the melody. And I, I think drummers put too much pressure on themselves to, to come up with original ideas to, mm-hmm. to inject into the song. Um, yeah. and I tell, I tell students all the time, like there, you know, there's content all around you and you can just yeah. use some of it. You can steal that horn figure and do a fill based on that rhythm. I, I, I use my uh, knowledge of, of melody mm-hmm. uh, or rhythm melody all the time. You know, if I, if I'm playing a tune and you know, I'm, I, if I just want to kind of start generating some momentum in my left hand comping. I'll just think of the rhythm of a another melody, and I'll just use that as my starting point. Mm-hmm. And always, always for solo. Always, I'm always tracking melody, not necessarily the tune I'm playing. As I say, always tracking melody when I'm solo. Right. Because if you've got if you've got eight bars uh, to cover, 
and and you can think of the rhythm of the melody of eight bars of Lady Be Good by George and Ira Gershwin and use that as your reference of some, some kind of framework around which you can play something. That's keeping you far more connected to music than counting bars and beats. Because if you're counting bars and beats, you're taking a step away from the music. Right. But if you're referencing music all the time and you're playing, you're, you're staying at the heart of where it belongs, where it should be. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's, that's, that's how I approach it every time. Everything I do, where, you know, if I'm playing in different styles, if I'm you know, coming up with grooves or fills in completely different musical genres, I still use the same jazz musician's approach. The other uh, phrase that, that jumped out at me when, when I was watching your, your videos uh, was uh, this phrase, playing with the right degree of authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you were talking about it in the context of, of this, you know, the tuning of the snare drum and how you, you tune it fairly high and get a good crack sound so that you can yeah. really kind of be on top of the band's sound. Um, but just the whole concept of playing with authority is, is something that I feel is essential to big band drumming. I think it's essential to all playing. It's it's essential when you're when you're playing brushes uh, behind a singer who's singing a ballad. Mm-hmm. It's still got to be that <clears throat> you've still got to give something out in it from just from how you play, <clears throat> how you emote on the instrument, and just your whole psyche. Um, and you know, we've all worked with people over the years who could be a bit tough. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, if they sense a little bit of weakness, you know they're on you. I've, I've seen leaders really get heavy with uh, young musicians and bands who, you know, couldn't fight their corner. And in the way you play, you've got to, you know, that confidence has, has, has got to come through. And it's, you know, it's not about volume. It's about it's more to do with intensity. Yeah. I mean, constantly, guys come to me a lot for because they want to get their jazz time feel together very often guys who have played very little jazz and it's an area that they want to develop and the thing i'm always having to do over and over again is to get them to play the ride cymbal more quietly but with more authority even if they're just quarters to sing and just to mean it to make everybody listen right and you can make everybody listen by playing quietly Right. I, I learned that, I think, somewhere somewhere in, in college when I was playing in a college big band. And, you know, the I, I think, uh, I don't know how it is in the UK, but <laughs> all over the United States, horn sections are just notorious for playing way back behind the beat and in some cases just dragging uh, <laughs> irreparably. And uh, we get, we get to, to, to be honest, don't, we don't have much of a problem, uh, uh, you know, good brass sections uh, in the UK. That's never an issue. Um, you know, we got, we got some fabulous lead trumpet players here, as, as of course you have in the United States as well. Uh, some of the some of the bands, even some of the pro bands, uh, if you get the wrong guy on lead alto, you can have some real time issues. Yeah, uh, saxophone sections. Yeah, uh, I think they they tend to like take the bassy laid back interpretation and just lay it back way too much. Yeah, um, or you know, particularly with younger bands or or bands that haven't rehearsed together a whole lot, like you yeah. know, the time tends to just die. But as a younger drummer, you know, my my instinct was to play louder and and just make it obvious to these guys where the beat was and get them to catch up. But I figured out if I just if I play quieter, they're going to shut up and listen to me. Yeah, yeah, and it, 
and it's it's nicer for them to play. They can, you know, if they're struggling, if they're having a blow really hard, right. you know, if their dynamic range is really pushed up, that's going to damage the cohesion of the horn sections. It's going <clears> to <throat> can play havoc with the intonation. Um, so you just got to find that balance where where you can make the band listen and make it comfortable comfortable for them to play. Because if you're going to get 15, 16 musicians all to play together at 280 beats per minute, you've got to make them comfortable. Right. You've got to make it. You've got to make it feel comfortable for them. And you can make it feel comfortable by kind of getting right onto the front of the beat and keeping it there. Um, but it's 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 about you know I, I can't remember who it was. Uh, I, I, I was at, at a uh, national association of jazz educators convention in. Anaheim over 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And one of the big lessons that I learned from listening to one of the clinics there was the whole idea of playing in order to make other people sound good. Mm-hmm. What better advice could there possibly be than that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think com- playing, playing with authority comes with, um, or I think it's gained by, uh, you know, gaining the trust of the band. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's about, like you said, making, making Phil's timekeeping and, you know, playing in a volume that they can play with, um, and, ha- and having absolute unshakable self-belief as well. Yeah. Uh, when, when you sit down to play, you know, knowing that even if you're wrong, you're right. Right. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and you know, that, that doesn't have to be, you know, that's very much, uh, implicit rather than explicit. Mm-hmm. And if you just sit down and you, you know, you just not not without being in any way aggressive or unpleasant or um, contrary around people. You can just give off a vibe in your persona where you know exactly what you're doing. You can be quiet and humble and pleasant to be around. Right. Uh, but when you sit down and play the drums, um, you know everybody knows where it's at. Yep. And the, the, you know that. There's no better example anywhere in the entire history of music for that than Steve Gadd. I mean, Steve is just the, you know, you, you couldn't meet a more uh, chilled out, humble, you know, kind, considerate, wonderful guy than Steve. Mm-hmm. But when he sits down to play the drums, it's business all the way. Yep. And, and he, he is so tapped into this thing of helping other musicians to sound good. And, you know, if it works for him, as of course it does, then uh, you can't really go wrong by following that pathway, I think. Yeah. I had a um, a similar experience with uh, Harold Jones, the great Count, oh. Count Basie drummer. Um, he came to my school when I was in college to do like a, you know, a residency week-long thing and do clinics and play with the band and so forth. And the first time I saw him play with the band because it was the same thing. Like you meet him, you meet him and he's this super nice guy, just all smiles, you know, gracious and, and warm and wonderful. And he sat down on the drums and they counted off a tune. You know, they went one, two, one, two, three. And like on beat three of the count off, Harold's entire body language changed. Like he mm-hmm. locked his eyes on the ride symbol. His, yep. like he sat up straight and like it was, I am the law. This is business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You lay down the law of rhythm. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about uh, you know uh, Buddy Rich and your 
relationship with him as a, as a drummer and as a sort of follower of his. Um, what are some of the misconceptions about Buddy that uh, that you think need to be dispelled? People people just just hear the the, the, the spellbinding fast hands, mm-hmm. and there's way way more to him than that. I think he's very very misunderstood by a lot of people, mm-hmm. and people just are, are dazzled by the technique and don't hear the tremendous <clears throat> musicality for me buddy is all about detail it's the it's some of the little things the subtle things that he would do mm-hmm. that that just pass a lot of people by and and you know they're, they're just i think i think sometimes you know the band would come to my hometown uh once or twice a year and i think you have a lot of people sitting there in the audience just waiting for the drum silence to happen right um it's that it, i mean he he was yeah, when when you when you are your own boss, when you're the leader, you can be an autocrat as far as the time is concerned. You can put it any way you want it, and and you know he had that unmistakable authority in his playing. Uh, he swung like crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I remember an era when a lot of the young drummers my age all thought they were they were too hip for Buddy Rich, you know? right? And they now they now they have seen the error of their ways. <laughs> they have all these years later. They have found enlightenment, right. and this, this so much. I, I, I like the. Uh, I, I just wrote a piece for for a magazine that's coming out shortly, <clears throat> um, and the, the uh, end of it was one particular time when I, I got introduced to him backstage prior to a show right. in 1980. And he went out on stage and, and played absolutely incredibly. And it was almost nonchalant. It was, it was just like, you know, he, he just could have been, you know, he could have been walking to the corner store. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 just the, it's just, and it, it wasn't, you know, the, there was a hundred percent commitment on the show. Mm-hmm. But the, the, you know, the freedom and fluidity with which he played. There was there was almost this casual this this, this effortless uh, supremacy about what he did. And that's one of the things I love. He 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 did he you know you can't say that he made it look easy, but he made it look effortless. Right. Which, you know that's not the same. He he just seemed so in charge of what he would do. And you know he like all the rest of us, he he was allowed the occasional mistake. <laughs> If you listen carefully to some of the records and some of the reissued tracks that weren't issued first time round, you can hear there's I can I can think of a an eight bar drum break that is actually seven bars and three beats long. But, you know, <laughs> I, I, I love the humanity of that. Yeah. But I, I for me, it, drummers like that, they show us the level of attainment. Mm-hmm. They show us what can be done and they show us what should be done. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't think of any reason why anybody at all who is serious about playing wouldn't want to be in their own way, you know, the the best possible drummer it's possible for them to be. I mean, I've been sitting here today. I just came up with some some new uh, uh, variations on on my personal hand technique, which is something that I've been. I don't. I don't my, my technique is different to a lot of other drummers, particularly as far as traditional grip is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I don't uh, I don't 
put the fulcrum in the in the way that drummers normally do when they play traditional. Right. And, and and recently, I just found another dimension to that. So here, you know, I've been playing drums now 52 years, and I'm still finding new stuff that I want to do. We're still trying to do new stuff and get better at it. And this this constant lifelong process of uh, learning and self improvement, and most importantly, sharing that with other people as well. That's that that's that's to me that's what it's all about. Yeah, and um. You know, Buddy, uh, Buddy evolved as a player. I think over the years, particularly in in the in the seventies, he started kind of assimilating um, uh, more pop styles, and his band started playing more, uh, you know, pop influenced music. Yeah, definitely. This this actually, it's, it's almost as though you've read this article that I wrote because this, <laughs> this is another. This is a, I, you know, I love the I love the verb. You know the action-packed jazz at the Philharmonic sessions mm -hmm. and all the things from the 50s. Uh, but for me, it's what he did from 1966 onwards. Right. Uh, that, identity, that is what defines his playing. Uh, that, you know, that was contemporary music. It was new music when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I was having to go into the past. I mean, I, I had, for the longest time, I had virtually no interest at all in what he'd ever done with, you know, Tommy Dorsey or Artie Shaw. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I came to that a lot later, just just to get a kind of an all round perspective on on the body of work. Uh, but what is really interesting to me, and it's something that never gets talked about uh, very much, and not as much as it should, is that period from 1962 to 1966 when he was playing with Harry James's band, hmm. and is playing kind of it's the the the, the Buddy Rich in his late forties is a much hipper sounding drummer than he was in his mid thirties. Mm -hmm. There's, there's new stuff going on. There's new concepts as far as phrasing. Uh, there's more, he's, it's almost like he suddenly discovered space in his solos. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas you think of, you know, some of the jazz of the Philharmonic records and he played these incredible athletic solos that, that, that are just, uh, you know, just, uh, they leave you open mouth. Right. But, when in the 60s he started to the, the, you know he kept all the, obviously he retained all that fire but it's like he tempered it with a kind of a, a, another layer of like almost like reflection and space which it, to my way of thinking made that action-packed fiery playing all the more dazzling mm -hmm. because there was more light and shade in what he did in later years right and you know, what is, again, there were all these cliches knocking around when I was young. You know, drummers used to say, oh, Buddy Rich, it's, it's old-fashioned and, and he can't play rock. I never heard him play rock. I only ever heard him play jazz with jazz musicians. I mean, if there's any bootlegs of him you know, sitting in with the rock bands, I haven't heard them. Right. Uh, but he did what we, so many drummers do, took from new areas of influence and kind of re remodeled them in his own image. And you know, I, mean, I love some of it. I, I love his approach to funk playing. Yeah. And I, 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 I love the Buddy and Soul record. A lot of people don't. Uh, but there's some stuff on that that is just so hip. You yeah, know, it, and it doesn't sound like he's not he's not playing funk like Harvey Mason. Um, no. You know, he's def it, it, it definitely still has that Buddy fire and that Buddy edge to it. Um, Harvey Mason wasn't playing funk like Harvey Mason back when that was recorded. <laughs> Uh, right, right. That wave of guys, you know, Harvey and Gad and all the guys who came to prominence in the 70s, 
they hadn't come through at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, and of all of, of Buddy's playing, some of that stuff, you've you got to listen to uh, the shout chorus of, of Love and Peace on the Buddy and Soul album. It's like mm -hmm. two bars band, two bars break. And, and, and it's, it's pure magic. And some of that stuff in his playing is the most, some of the most unique stuff that he ever did. Uh, and for me, the, the the way he used to play a jazz waltz as well was was like nobody else. Yeah, uh, yeah. he had this really muscular approach. You, you'd hear him play tunes like Willow Crest and Green Sleeves and, and Goodbye Wood and, and, and yeah, yeah, to a to, to an extent. I, I think it went when the tempos were a little bit quicker. Okay, and he just had this thing going on. You know, you think of jazz waltzes of the, the, the bands used to play back then, like. Alice in Wonderland and Someday My Prince Will Come. Right. And, and it was all kind of very, very delicate kind of ride symbol with a little bit of discrete color in between. Mm -hmm. And it was in, in, in its own way kind of linear. And then Buddy comes along with this four-limbed approach <laughs> that is, and it's, I can actually do quite a good takeoff of it. And it's, it's something that I, I, I did it for Greg Bissonnette one time and he, he just loved it. Um, and, um, and th th those two elements of his playing, I consider to be amongst the most unique things of his, that when you hear them, you know there's only one person it can be. Right. Whereas you know, if you listen to a, a 1950s Verve album, th there's a, there are a number of drummers you could possibly, until the solos start, then you know it's Buddy. Right. Uh, but there are, you know, hey, is this is this Buddy, is, or is that... Or might that be Alvin, Alvin Stoller, or is that Lee Young, or is it J.C. Hurd? Uh, you know, sometimes there's a little ambiguity about who you might be listening to. Mm -hmm. But there's some of those things that he did in later years, you know, his first, second, and last Buddy Rich and Buddy Rich alone. Yeah. Um, I heard uh, Peter Erskine talking about Buddy, um, and w without, without being disparaging to Buddy at all, Peter said, you know, in, in a way – Buddy kind of ruined big band drumming. <laughs> and what he, what he meant by that was that, you know, students uh, and young drummers who are learning how to, how to play big band often go straight to Buddy Rich. And, and that really out front, you know, drums as the leader kind of yeah. concept when, when really they should be looking at Mel Lewis. Well, I, I've, I've often said that, uh, and, and I, I, have to, I have to disagree with Peter in, in this regard. Uh, because, you know, the young drummers, and I don't wish this in any way to sound patronizing, if you've got a, a young player who's 11, 12, 13 years of age, he might not be ready for Mel Lewis. Hmm. He might not be ready to listen to ABC Blues or, 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 or some of that stuff. The, the subtlety uh, of what Mel was doing might be a little bit, obtuse for somebody that young mm -hmm. where and it, this this is one of the things why buddy is so important and it, again it's one of these things that doesn't get said he was this kind of everyman virtuoso mm -hmm. anybody walking off the street or come home at night and switch channels on television and without knowing anything about drums or knowing anything at all about jazz or without even knowing who he was you know you're looking at greatness right and this is where the gateway is to be found. Because mm -hmm. if you show that to a young player, just as you know, I'd heard him from regularly on records from when I was about five, and a couple of years later, actually saw him on television. 
pay attention, seeing them yeah. that had the impact. Uh, and that made me go for it. And, you know, we have to have the gateway. And I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to any kind of point of view that Buddy in any way ruined big band drumming at all. Um, well, I think what he meant by that is that, uh, you know, young, young drummers try to do too much too soon. Um, well, like, well uh, yeah, well, we've, all, we've all overplayed at some point. Right. Uh, I, I, on, on the videos of mine that we were talking about earlier, I did a little piece about overplaying on that where I, I did a little bit, deliberately played fills with way too many notes. Right. I, I remember that. A couple of fills, a couple of those fills sounded like fills I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually got some very positive feedback about it because, you know, although there was too much in them, right. I made sure they ended in the right place. But, yeah, this is, it's just part of the, you know, the, the, the growing up process and, uh, and anything. This was like, there was a lot of um, controversy when the Whiplash movie came out right. or around about two years ago. And, and I felt very strongly that you know, there's so much negativity in various media about it. And I thought, well, anything that is bringing this type of music to a young audience for the first time, if just a few of them come out of the cinema thinking, oh, that was really cool. I really like that music. What was that tune called? Is that tune called Caravan? Is that other tune called Whiplash? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's written by, who was it written by Hank Levy? Who's Hank Levy? What else did he write? Mm-hmm. I like Hank Levy's music. You know, this is how it starts. This is, you know, <clears throat> none of us are born into this life fully formed. Right. You know, aesthetics is something that, is grown, it is developed, and you know it's a journey, and and you you find your way. And some drummers may, you know, they they may never get the uh, the, the 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 sheer beauty of Don Lamont playing with Woody Herman's second herd in the late forties. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I hope that they do. And and what I'm trying to do, without being kind, and I because I don't consider myself a retro player at all. Right. Uh, I've just been around a long time and I've been playing long enough to have been very deeply influenced by <clears throat> the people we talked about mm-hmm. when they were still with us and at the peak of their powers. But I, you know, I'm not, you know, playing vintage drums or wearing vintage suits or right. watching a black and white television with only two channels on it. <laughs> uh, you know, for, for the, in the, in the, in the interest of authenticity. Um, but I think those of us who have, you know, being fortunate enough to live through that whole era. <clears throat> uh, you can tell I've been talking a long time. Uh, <laughs> those of us have been fortunate enough to have lived through that whole era. Owe it to the young people who are coming around now to give them as much insight as we can into what it was really all about and what it still is really all about mm-hmm. in the hope that they might feel inspired by some of what they hear and what they see. Uh, and and pick it up themselves and and take it forward and do you know maybe do something completely new with it which yeah. would be amazing. Have you read the the book uh, the torment of Buddy Rich? Yeah, I have. I think that's the best book about him that I've I, ever I read. I do too. I do too. It's a, a I, 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 the, you know the Mel Torme book was very good, but a lot of it's about Mel Torme. Um, uh, but the yeah the John Minahan book I, I thought was very very insightful. Yeah, really. And- Talking about you know what what it's all about you know Buddy uh, placed a high value on on playing live and communicating with an audience which I think yeah. you do too I do um, yeah and uh, I think the reason 
that he um, got a, a a bad rap in some ways. I mean, you hear the bus tapes of him like screaming at his band. Um, yeah, but when you can I talk, can I, you, you just can I just talk about that for a moment? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I know guys who were in the band uh, when those tapes were recorded, and uh, I believe, and you know, none of us can be certain. We can. This is only conjecture. I believe that Buddy was to some extent aware of their existence. Mm-hmm. But the tragedy for me is that there are people out there who can probably recite whole chunks of those tapes because <laughs> they heard them on Seinfeld or something. Right. And you know, they don't and they don't know uh, uh, Big Swing Face from Bugle Call Rag. You know, they, they, if you play them a Buddy track, they wouldn't know what it was. Right. Uh, and, and I think it's a bit of a shame that, that uh, you know, it, it kind of adds to the sort of the, the, the kind of the, the sort of street legend thing, right? But I, I think I think it's a bit of an un. It's like so some of the books that were were written about Sinatra, particularly the 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 one by uh, Kitty Kelly, which was a a knockdown, drag out, no holds barred uh, revelation of uh, everything that Sinatra got up to in his life, right? Uh, which, I, which I, I mean, I read it three times, but I thought it was nevertheless <laughs> a somewhat unnecessary intrusion, and I do believe that. A lot of times, uh, and this is particularly hard to get your head around in, in our, our modern social media age, a lot of times we just uh, should kind of enjoy what these artists have given to us in the way they chose to communicate with us as listeners, as audience members, mm-hmm. and kind of leave it there. You know, right. I've, I've employed a number of musicians who were in Buddy's band. Uh, and they've all got great stories about him. They're always universally warm in their recollections of how he was as a man, mm-hmm. even if there were, you know, some sometimes, should we say, moments of unpredictability. But right. you know, that's a, that's that's a personal matter. That you know, that belongs to to his memory and to his family. And you know, I don't care to be involved. With it. I just, you know. I just love the playing. I love the music. Yeah. And I, you know, as long, as long as as he was nice to the people closest to him, then, you know, that's, that's good enough for me. Right. And that's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm such a fan of, of the Minahan book is because it really humanizes buddy. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And for those who, who uh, are are not hip to it, John Minahan was a a journalist and a friend of buddy rich who, who traveled (laughs) with him a lot and, um, you know, saw, the, the public Buddy Rich and the private Buddy Rich. Yeah, and you know that book actually started off as a small article in a souvenir tour brochure. Right, right, right. About 1974, and, and he expanded it uh, in, into this really very, very interesting, thought-provoking, and I think in a, in a great many ways, very insightful kind of a book. Mm-hmm. As you say, it very much humanizes him. Yeah. And it it totally it put the bus tapes in context for me because the book talks so much about, um, you know, just the the passion Buddy had for music and and the the love that he had for audiences and and the commitment that he had to give his all every single performance. And, And, you know, the way the way that he expressed it might not have been terribly constructive, but those bus tapes and the, you know, the fury that Buddy was kind of famous for, I think came from his his perception that the guys in his band were not giving as much as he was. They weren't as committed as he was. 
Um, and he even the, the book talks about him, you know, dressing down audience members in his club. If they were talking, you know, he would he would be like, you're you, would you be talking during a symphony concert? This is American classical music. Shut yeah. up and listen. You know, yes, yes. Um, so it really like I said, it really humanized him for me. And, yeah, I think so. And put think his so. his kind of psyche and his uh, his legend in context. Yeah, and, and, and it's so good that Minahan wrote that when he did, because, you know, they, these things cannot be done retrospectively. They can't be done posthumously. You have to have been there mm-hmm. uh, to really have that kind of insight. Otherwise, it's just conjecture. Do you know what, Do you know what really winds me up, Zach? I'll tell you, and there's a lot of them on YouTube. It's when, it's when uh, you see some, with, I don't know, with whatever intent, Somebody posts a, a little video done in their bedroom with a snare drum on a practice pad or something, and they say, Buddy Rich's left hand technique, explain. <laughs> you know, you must you must have seen him. You must oh, have yeah. seen him. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, actually, no, it's your left hand technique. <laughs> and you know, the the only person who could have told us what Buddy was really doing when he was playing, how he was thinking about what he did with his hands if he was thinking at all or if it was just so many years down the line that it was just completely second nature. The only person who could definitively answer any of these questions would be Buddy himself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's sadly 30 years gone now, Mm -hmm. and uh, he's the only guy who could answer those questions. And and it's it's fascinating to uh, indulge in a little bit of conjecture, but what what I always say to my students, uh, whenever... You see something that another drummer who you really admire is doing. And let's use Buddy's left hand technique as an example. Don't try to do what they're doing. Find a way, find your way of doing it by te- looking at every element of what they do and every element that, you know, just start with a blank sheet of paper. Look at what, how your hands work, what your fingers will do, whatever it is you want to do on the drum set. Take the inspiration from the master players, take it apart, undo all the nuts and bolts so you've got this great pile of bits and pieces in front of you, and then find as many different ways as you can of putting it back together. That reminds me of, uh, I, I did an interview a couple weeks ago with Herman Matthews, um, mm-hmm. and I asked him about you know trends in, in drumming, whether it's the gospel chops thing or whatever else, and, and which trends you choose to uh, assimilate into your playing. Um, and, and he talked about, uh, you know, how every, each of us as, as a player has certain tendencies, certain propensities and, um, you know, some, some trends are going to come along that kind of complement your style or complement your, uh, your body, the way your hands and feet work. Um, but, but sometimes you, you just got to let something go and and say, you know, that's not, that's not the kind of drumming I want to do. That's not the kind Mm -hmm. of drumming that I want to strive for. Well, I think that's a great that is a great indicator of maturity mm-hmm. and wisdom, because you know, I, particularly with some of the, the colleges that I've taught at over the years, uh, the students get so overwhelmed by course content, and they feel that they're very much under pressure to be able to do everything. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody can ever has or needs to do everything, and to me, the attainment of maturity and wisdom is knowing what you want and knowing what you don't want. Mm-hmm. And that may 
that may have a bearing on on your lifestyle. It may uh, have a bearing on how much money you earn, the kind of life you're able to lead. But I think having the integrity to play the instrument the way you want to play it is is something that everybody should strive for. Don't get me wrong, the young players who I'm sending out to college now, as well as my private students who are in their 20s and 30s, I'm telling them, go out and be whatever the industry wants you to be. Mm. Go out there and play to the demands of the industry, whatever is the hip thing, whatever is the perceived current style. And I, you know, I, th- I think you're probably quite a bit younger than me, Zach, but you know, I remember in, in the 1980s when suddenly everybody started playing black Yamaha recording series drums. Yeah. Then a few years later, they started playing Cherrywood Yamaha recording series drums. And the, these things that, because of the people who are the most influential at the top of the industry, they trickle down to everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, as you know, that, I mean, that's a kind of a lazy example on my part there of, you know, equipment and replica drum sets. Right. Uh, but in playing terms, these things become part of the everyday vocabulary. Yeah. And a lot of it kind of rises to the surface and becomes what's expected of drummers. And you can never really second guess what the next trend is going to be. Uh, but I think the young professional players really should get as close as they can to doing that. You know, yeah. Do what the industry wants you to do. Because if you can do that, you're going to travel the furthest. Right. And, you know, when you're 41 years old and you've got gold records off every on every wall of every room of your uh five million pound house mm-hmm. uh, or maybe not because you know that kind of material attainment is not what everybody wants right uh, then as you can with you know you can say all right this is why I learned to play and this is why I <clears throat> consider myself to be one of the most fortunate drummers out there because all the stuff that made me really excited about drumming when you know before I was even six years old uh, is all present in my professional life now. And, and I'm exactly the drummer I dreamed about thinking when I was a very small child, which is uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think it, it is. It's cool to yeah. watch. It's cool to hear. Uh, and, it was, uh, and it was great to talk to you, man. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Many thanks to Pete for sharing his time and expertise with us. Again, that book is called The Torment of Buddy Rich by John Minahan. I recommend it as highly as Pete does, and we put a link to it on the episode page for Pete's interview at WorkingDrummer.net. And also check out his YouTube series entitled Pete Cater's Guide to Big Band Drumming. A lot of great information in there. Again, Matthew Krause is back with you next week for our 100th episode, and as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.